Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is Christian ethics, particularly issues associated with with death and dying. And my expert is uh, a good friend of mine, Scott Ray, Dr. Scott Ray, who teaches out at Talbot Seminary and is dean of faculty there. Have I sufficiently introduced you, Scott? That's good enough. Okay. Uh, and what uh, a little disclaimer here at the start. Scott and I have known each other for a very, very long time. We grew up down the street from one another, known each other since we were five years old. We're literally childhood friends who uh, know far more about each other than we ought to. And uh, But Scott has developed uh, his expertise, particularly in the area of Christian ethics, and has written a book that's just come out called Introducing Christian Ethics, one of several that he's written on on moral choices. In fact, the subtitle of this is a short guide to making moral choices. So, Scott, why don't you tell everybody how you got in the field of Christian ethics? Well, I I started uh, more in the sort of traditional seminary route, um, and went did Old Testament, uh, and then transitioned uh, into ethics. Uh, I remember speaking to a provost at another university. And he asked me, how did you get from Old Testament into ethics? And I looked at him straightforwardly and said, I read the text. Mm -hmm. I took the Old Testament text seriously. I don't think you can read the Scripture very long without having an interest in ethics, uh, what Roman Catholics call moral theology. Uh, What I wanted to do, what I was most interested in, is doing some field where I could connect my background in Bible and theology to issues that people actually cared about and were reading on the front page of the newspaper. Because what I had found was that the people who were really good in biblical studies and theology were not so good on the issues of the day, and vice versa. The people who were good on the issues, if they even cared about biblical studies and theology, tended to play it fast and loose with the Scripture. So I want to try and do both of those well and bring those together uh, and speak to issues that I I still think desperately need a coherent, biblically-based, theologically sound position. Yeah, we talk about it here this way. We say that seminaries do a pretty good job, generally speaking, of trying to train people to go from the Bible to life. But when you switch it and go from life back to the Bible, that's that's a little harder move. It's a little more difficult move, complicated move. And as a result, people tend not to do that as well. And seminaries don't do quite as good a job at training people to go in that direction as they ought to. Well, sort of, it's, it's, I mean, I agree. It's too bad that that's a shortcoming because, as you and I've talked about, that's actually the way the Bible tends to approach it. Exactly right. Starting from life and then, you know, going back to what's necessary and to be well grounded biblically and theologically. And of course, what makes that challenging is, is that when you move from life back to the Bible, we're talking about a little method here before we get into the specific topic. But when you move from life to the Bible, you have to deal with the whole of the Bible in many ways, uh, as opposed to this passage or that passage. And it's too easy in discussing ethics in the Bible to cherry pick from passages rather than being 
holistic in how you put that package together. Is fair summary? I think that is a fair summary. And where, where, I, where I think we really benefit from seeing the whole picture is if, you, if we can give people the, the full four-chapter, what I call the four-chapter view of biblical history, where we go, we're, we're good at giving them fall and redemption, mm-hmm. but not so much at creation and consummation. Yeah, we're, we so, go ahead. I'm sorry. Those are the, the, the bookends are the, are the part that I think is missing from a lot of theological education. Yeah, we talk about this in relationship to the gospel all the time, that the gospel doesn't start in Genesis 3, it starts in Genesis 1. We're made for relationship with God, we're made in the image of God, we're made to be connected to God. And when we start with the fall and we forget that starting point, we forget God's commitment to be related to us, or we risk forgetting God's commitment to be related to us from the very beginning. And, when, and the consummation, of course, takes you back to that starting point. So that it wraps uh, the story of the tensions the fall introduces around a pre a prequel, if you will, that says God made us to be good creatures who are to be connected to Him. Right, and that's why we I think we would suggest that uh, you know our our salvation is for the life of the world, mm-hmm. not just for our own personal eternal life. That's right. So it's and that's what that's what I think the bookends give us that is so important. So we push towards a set of values that push in the direction of seeking common good in the best sense of that phrase and seeking human flourishing in the best sense of that phrase and we are so taught to think beyond ourselves and our own individual lives to what's going on with people around us and the creation around us etc. Yeah, and I think I, I, I put it in, in terms of uh, how Jeremiah spoke to the exiles, where even though the, even though Israel was in exile in Babylon, they were still commanded to seek the welfare of the city that they were in, mm-hmm. seek the welfare of the common good. And I think to, in our culture today, with the church, I think more resembling being in exile today than it has at any at any other time in my lifetime. Uh, I think that's still good advice from Jeremiah. Yeah, the other image that we often put forward as we're thinking about this is that we're called to be ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of the kingdom of heaven in such a way that that how we interact, even how we engage with conflict and tension, is to reflect the way in which God has done it, and God takes the initiative of stepping into that tension through the incarnation with Christ and to show uh, how he is taking the initiative to try and defuse situations as opposed to contribute to the tension. Well, I think that's why this material on the end of life matters so much, not just because it's the doorstep to eternity, but because the body matters. Mm-hmm. You know, if the incarnation tells us anything, it's that the, bo- the body counts and it counts for eternity. So, uh, and that's why I think it's so important that we get this right about how to care for people at the end of life. Well, uh, uh, one more question before we transition to that discussion is specifically, and that, and that's this: as we as we think about, sometimes the question gets asked this way: How can we talk about the common good when we hold so little in common and we can't agree on what's good? Um, how, how do you do that in a world where there are so many different ideas out there about what the common good is? How do you how do you build those bridges? Well, I, um, that's can we take the rest of the time on that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I guess I would I'd quibble with the premise a bit uh-huh. on this because I think we I think sometimes when we acknowledge the moral diversity culturally, we forget about all the areas in which there is moral common ground. Mm-hmm. 
I think if, if we had as much moral diversity as we sometimes think we do, our culture, we, we wouldn't be able to survive on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but the very fact that we have meaningful communication, that we have you know, mostly trustworthy market-based transactions, that we drive our, our cars at 60 to 70 miles an hour without killing or maiming each other on a daily basis, uh, you know, for, for, and among um, uh, a number of other things, suggests that there's actually, a, a, I think, a little deeper reservoir of shared values than we are, are want to admit. Uh, and I think I'd want to be careful, too, to distinguish between uh, disagreement in terms of values and a difference in application. Because mm-hmm. I think there, there, are, there are values, I think, that are widely shared, but the application of those can look pretty different in different cultures. And I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure I'd call that an example of moral diversity. I'd call that an example of, you know, I guess applicational diversity. Uh, but I think we probably have a little more in common than we give ourselves credit for. Uh, that, that's, and some, it, in some parts of the world, that might that that may be less true than others. It's interesting because I do think that you're right that, that if you ask what motivates people to act as they do, actually the way I describe this is is that there are tensions that you've got competing biblical values sometimes because we live in a fallen world that come against one another, and what people are debating is not this tension or that tension, but how to balance those two in relationship to each other a lot of times. Well, that's, a, that's a good observation. We, 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 say, we tell this to our business students all the time. We say, in a fallen world, don't be surprised that you have genuine moral conflicts. And that's a, a, a moral conflict is when, when biblical values come into conflict. And I, I don't think, in fact, I'm surprised that it doesn't happen more often. Uh, and so what the debate is often over how you wait competing values and for what reasons uh, and trusting more than just your your gut or you into, or your intuition and the do. hard thing here is is that what tends to happen in our rhetoric that gets in the way is is that people will pick they'll cherry what I call cherry pick those values and land on one almost at the expense of the other and in the process cut off the conversation that needs to be had about how to balance the things that are intention that's right that's right this is why we say in for the most part, even though the way we view morality in general is is predominantly through a blend of virtues and principles, we would call ourselves a prima facie absolutist or prima facie principle driven, and that made the less Latin for at first face or first glance, which suggests that the the, the things that we consider moral absolutes. Are, are generally absolute, unless, but, but calling them prima facie leaves room for, them to, for there to be exceptions to those when they come into conflict with other competing values. You know, for example, we say truth-telling is a prima facie moral value, but if somebody comes knocking on the, on the, 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 ta- the door for the, the table podcast and says, where's the host, pointing a loaded gun, I hope that your staff person is going to tell them something that will mislead them. Um, like he's and, occupied. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know, maybe we should maybe we shouldn't stretch that too far. <laughs> but I think we we would I think we would all say that there there are times in which the obligation to tell the truth conflicts with some other important value that may or may not be weighted more heavily. 
So, I mean, so you example, tell that story, and I immediately think of the way in which uh, the the Gentile woman hid uh, hid the Israel Israelite spies. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, or take you know when when uh, the Gestapo knocked on Corey Ten Boom's door in World War II and said, "Are you hiding Jews?" Which she was, uh, and if she had told the truth there, that they would have been shipped off to Auschwitz. Uh, and I think I think she did not just a lesser evil. I actually think she did a morally justifiable thing. Interesting. Well, we we're probably due for another podcast that's just about how to make these moral choices and pursue the common good and that kind of thing. But I think it's important to kind of set the table for what we're getting ready to discuss because there's no doubt that when you come into the area of assisted suicide and death and and the expectations tied to that, that you're dealing in some senses with really competing values that that people are appealing to as they go through these options. And Scott, what struck me about the chapter that you wrote, and we're looking at chapter eight in this book, Death, Dying, and Assisted Suicide, is a distinction you make early on that I'd like you to elaborate on a little bit between uh, the three levels of conversation that you need to think about as you talk about end of life, the difference between withdrawing treatment, between what's called POS, or I guess physician-assisted suicide, and then termination of life support, or what you call TLS. I know something's important when it gets an abbreviation and it's all in caps. So, um, uh, so t- talk a little bit about the difference of those three levels and why it's important for this kind of a discussion. Yeah. I, in fact, I think the the trickiest conversations are not around assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. They're around the termination of life support. Yes, um, and I think those are the things that cause uh, you know families and loved ones the most angst at the end of life. So, termination of life support is simply exercising what I think is a person's biblically allowed option under the right conditions to say stop to medicine mm-hmm. and to say enough. And I actually think it's a way of entrusting the patient back to the Lord mm-hmm. by removing all, medic, all medical obstacles that prevent a disease from taking its natural course. So it's the cause of death when a life support is removed or treatment is stopped or, not, or withheld is the underlying disease or condition that's allowed to run its natural course. Because it's killing the person. Right. Yeah. And because and generally because continuing to treat the person is under the uh, if if the prognosis is very poor at the end of life, the, continuing to treat the person is either futile, which means it's not going to stop this irreversible downward spiral toward death, mm-hmm. or more commonly, it's more burdensome than beneficial mm-hmm. to the patient because most treatments are are at least moderately beneficial. But the problem is that they impose such burdens on the patient. For example, uh, I spent about 15 years as an ethics consultant for various hospitals around the Southern California area. And I'll never forget one case where this poor, this 98-year-old man, he couldn't have weighed more than about 98 pounds. He was at the end stage of stomach and colorectal cancer. His family was requesting that he be prepped for a colonoscopy, God forbid, mm-hmm. to, to enable one last round of radiation treatment to try and get him to live a little bit longer. The nurses brought the case to the ethics committee. You know what they said? Hmm. They said, why are we torturing this poor man? Hmm. 
fact, I think you probably could have held him up to a nice, strong, bright light and been able to see about as much as you could from a colonoscopy. Hmm. He was so thin. But I think that what they recognized is that the potential benefit of this treatment was just vastly outweighed by the burden that it was causing to this poor man, whose family, I think, were good-hearted, but the family, they weren't in the room. They weren't watching what was going to go on. They, I mean, they went out for lunch after they authorized this without a clue about what they were actually um, authorizing medicine to do to their loved one. Hmm. I think under that under that condition, especially, I think it would have been not only appropriate, but I think it would have been, it was their obligation to say enough to medicine, and and the the treatment would now they transition to what's called palliative care or just just pain control only. Yeah, I, I think you and I have both been through the these kinds of decisions personally. Um, uh, I remember, and this is actually interesting. Uh, I actually remember uh, my wife's. Uh, grandmother going through um, after a stroke and and slowly going downhill, getting to the point where her family was put in the position of having to make this decision. Her interestingly enough, her father, a well known, very well known doctor, um, facing these decisions all the time, and they were getting down to this this kind of level of care. And uh, it's the only time they've consulted me on something moral. And they came to me and said, you know, here are the choices. Um, we've got a disagreement between the doctor who's caring for uh, this woman and and my father-in-law as a doctor. And and they were asking me for an opinion about, about the withdrawal of care. And basically, um, the response that I gave them was very much like yours. You know, it's asking the question, what real good is this going to do to extend this care? What kind of prognosis do we really have? That kind of thing. There comes a point where you say, um, this disease, in, in a sense, has won and let it, let it run its course. That's right. See, I think the, the, I'd say a prior question we encourage family members to ask, to ask themselves is, if this patient could speak for himself or herself, would they want this additional treatment? Mm -hmm. And so the, we use in bioethics, we use, the term we use for that is substituted judgment, where you substitute your own judgment representing as best you can what you think the wishes of that patient might be, which is another, which is another good reason why uh, all of us ought to be writing these things down. Yes, so I was just going to come. Most of you get yes. this consent ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. And so then it becomes it becomes a lot simpler because the family's role then, if they have something in writing, the family's role is simply interpretive. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they get to, or I'm sorry, not interpret. It's enforcement. Mm -hmm. It's because that's the family's function is not a hermeneutical one. Right. They don't get to, they don't get to reinterpret and come up with a better idea. Yeah. Their job. The patient has they've done their homework and written this down because they take it seriously. And they expect that those things be followed, particularly by their family members. Um, but that's not always the case. Yeah. Now, this introduces an element into the conversation that probably is going to run us up into the break, and we're going to have to cover on the other side. But uh, obviously, when we're dealing with the desire of the patient, 
uh, we're running up against another standard that we're, that is driving this discussion, and that is the preciousness of life and who gets to make choices about the precious nature of life. And so when those come into conflict, you're sliding, if you will, you might be sliding away from dealing with terminal care, if I can characterize this first category that way, to the idea of physician-assisted um, death, and and we're moving across a track here that co- it becomes more complicated morally. I think that's right. Um, and with the termination of treatment, the reason I don't think that you have a genuine moral conflict, although emotionally you have a huge one, mm-hmm. is because the, the, the notion of death being a conquered enemy, see, I think, strongly suggests that it need not always be resisted. Mm-hmm. And that we don't, we, we are not obligated to keep everybody alive at all times and at all costs, no matter what. Uh, I think what that's, I think that's forcing us to make a theological statement that I really don't think we want to make. Because if, if we are obligated to keep everyone alive at all times and at all costs, then I think what we're saying theologically is that earthly life is the highest good. Mm-hmm. Which theologically, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Earthly life is a penultimate good. That's pretty. I mean, it's pretty high up the list, but it's not at the top of the pile. Uh, I think Augustine was right when he said our highest good is our eternal fellowship with God. So, part of what you do in this chapter is to talk about the biblical background to the idea that life is precious and that we need to understand kind of what that ranking is. If I can use a picture, mm-hmm. uh, that's what you're getting at here, right? I think so, yeah. And um, I think you you can hold to the sacredness of life without it becoming an idol. And I think the term we use for the notion you have to keep everybody alive at all times and all costs is vitalism. And the Bible does not teach vitalism. The the sanctity of life and vitalism are not the same thing. Uh, Because although I think what the sanctity of life suggests is that what violates the Sixth Commandment, which is deliberately, human beings cannot deliberately be the cause of death for another innocent human being, including themselves. But it doesn't follow that we can let go of medical treatment so that the cause of death is allowed to be the underlying disease or condition. Those are two very different things, morally and philosophically. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. 
And now we're coming to physician-assisted suicide and the rest of the spectrum in terms of taking life. And I think the way I want to introduce this segment is to talk about the way in which this has gotten portrayed in our culture is kind of setting the table for this conversation. And we've been through, in recent times, two movies that have portrayed this. And I'd like for Scott to kind of walk us through these two movies and what they put out on the table and how we should think about them. Yeah. Can I, can I just go, can I go back for 10 seconds? Absolutely. Just, just to be clear, uh, I, I wouldn't want your readers to think that, or your your listeners to think that uh, the termination of care is ever an option. That's why we always try to use the term termination of treatment. Okay. Because care, care is always morally obligated, regardless of decisions about treatment. So we just what we do is we transition a person from aggressive care to palliative care or pain relief care. So, I've, in fact, I've, I've, had to, I've had to talk to physicians about this, and nurses not so much, uh, but to say, you know, we're not, we're not ending care. Uh, we're ending treatment. Um, so that's, I think, an important thing, especially, for, especially for, for pastors and for family members who are at the bedside. Uh, it's really important that they be reassured that their loved one, even though we may terminate treatment, that they're still going to be cared for and their dignity is still going to be protected. Uh, a few years ago, Million, Million Dollar Baby came out, which was it was advertised as a boxing movie, but in reality, it was an assisted suicide movie uh, that I think fairly fairly aggressively advocated for assisted suicide. And it was illegal at the time, so it wasn't really an option. But Hillary Duff plays a boxer who's coached by Clint Eastwood. And after years of boxing uh, and the injuries involved, uh, came to a place where she wanted to end her life. And it was viewed in the movie as sort of tragic that the law at the time was preventing her from doing that. Uh, you know, contrast that, I think, to the movie, which the more recent one that the, I think this podcast is uh, going to be released about me the time it you. comes out. Yep, uh, me, me before you, mm -hmm. which is a great story about the value of life of the disabled, uh, the seriously disabled, uh, and the the obligation of care for the most vulnerable among us. Uh, and I think it, it illustrates, I think, really well the the biblical notion that we are obligated to to care and to advocate for the most vulnerable among us as opposed to considering them the, the, the first candidates for assisted suicide. Okay. So with that in, kind of in place as kind of the background, let's talk a little bit about what's called PAS or physician-assisted suicide. Um, how should Christians think about this? And maybe the way into this, Scott, is to talk a little bit about the theology that comes before it. Uh, that that how should we how should we think about life and death both as we think about these situations that that uh, oftentimes lead to um, the injection of the possibility of PAS? Okay, I think the, theologically, um, I think. The explanation, the grounding theological, I think, bumps directly up against the most common argument used for assisted suicide and euthanasia. And that is it's an argument from personal autonomy. And it's my body, it's my choice, it's my life, it's my, it's my decision, it's my death. And, you know, morality and the law should just stay out of it. 
Um, I think the Bible, I think, is really clear about the place that personal autonomy has and the place that the fulfillment of our desires has in the hierarchy of things that are important to a person who's committed to following Jesus. I find, as I read the New Testament, the idea of the fulfillment of my desires ranks pretty low on the priority list of, of those things that are important to the people who are committed to following Jesus. I read texts like, uh, you, know, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, which suggests that the, the satisfaction of my desires is a fairly low priority. Not that my desires are useless, but that they are trumped by a whole lot of other things. I think the reality with assisted suicide, and this, this is actually very timely in my home state of California here, because as of July 1st, uh, the, the law that was passed permitting assisted suicide actually went into effect uh, just, just not even a couple months ago. So, But I think, you know, again, theologically, uh, the, the mandate to protect innocent life the mandate to, for human beings not to be the direct cause of death for another innocent human being is something that comes from passages like Hebrews Hebrews 9.28, which suggests it's appointed unto a man to die once and then comes judgment. Hey, well, it's appointed by whom? Right? Obviously appointed by God, which suggests that God is the one who has the ultimate say in the cause of death for innocent human beings. So to take the, you know, the first few bits of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where there's a time for everything, time to be born and a time to die, the point of that is that, that life is this grand symphony of which God is the composer. And that there, the reason there's a time for, to live and a time to die is because God has set the times to live and the times to die. So I think what that suggests theologically is that the timing and manner of our death ultimately belongs to God. And for the believer... It seems to me that doing an end run around the dying process, I don't find anything particularly dignified about that. In fact, it seems to me the dignity in dying comes from how you cope with all of the necessary losses that are a part of the dying process and how, how you endure that with grace, how you endure that with faith and trust. Uh, seems to me that's what it means for a believer to die with dignity. And the reality is that the, the number of people who actually face their the end of their lives in unremitting, unrelieved pain is minusculely small. Uh, that's why the argument for mercy, which it makes for a great 30-second soundbite, has largely been abandoned by the, the, the the advocacy groups that are promoting euthanasia and assisted suicide. And it's, it's focused more on an autonomy argument. And the reality is that medicine, particularly palliative, good palliative care medicine, can control almost everyone's pain at the end of life, short of, short of killing them. And what we found is that when people have their pain controlled, it's not a big surprise, but when their pain is under control, they actually give up the desire for assisted suicide. Hmm. So, um, so I take it here that uh, the idea of assisted suicide. Now, this is legal in some states now. Is that correct? I mean, I think you mentioned yeah, five, California. Five, five states in the U.S. Now okay. it's Washington, Oregon, California, Montana, and Vermont. 
Oh, so I was going to say it's completely a Northwest thing, and I mean North, North yeah, Northwest thing until until Vermont came into the mix. It's not, yeah, uh, but it's obviously an ongoing discussion. Uh, it's it's the opposite end of the life discussion in some ways from a perhaps more famous discussion that takes place among Christians related to issues tied to birth, but it's still in many ways a similar kind of conversation about how to view life. Yeah, it's just it's just it's, just, it's the other it's the other end of the coin at the other end of life. Mm-hmm. And, and people, in fact, people who said in in the, in the in 1973 that the court's view of abortion would eventually come back to impact how the courts view the end of life has turned out to be exactly true. Interesting. So wh- where are the courts on this? I mean, like you said, you've, you obviously serve, have served on, on ethics commissions of hospitals. Where are the courts on these kinds of issues? Well, the Supreme Court ruled on this definitively in 1997 with a case from the Northwest and a case from New York and the East Coast. And essentially what they ruled is that there's nothing unconstitutional about either allowing or prohibiting assisted suicide. So it left it entirely to the states through the legislative process to come up with uh, whatever they, they wanted their policy to be on this. And just by the way, that's that's the, the primary criticism of Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion. That's what, that's what most people who are are opposed to abortion think that the court should have done with Roe v. Wade. Interesting. So, um, so distinguish for me between uh, passive or physicians. Sorry, I keep calling it passive physician-assisted suicide and and euthanasia. Is there a distinction there? Yes, and and I, it's actually uh, it's an important one. I think for the law, morally, I think though it's probably a distinction without much of a difference. Okay, that's actually what I'm driving at. Yeah. The the uh, assisted suicide the, the, it occurs when a patient has six months or less to live with a diagnosable terminal illness, and the physician comes in and prescribes, advises, and supervises the patient ingesting the, the life-ending dose of medication himself or herself. Right? The patient actually does this under the, with the assistance of the physician. So the person has made the choice, basically, to say, I want to terminate my life, and doctor, will you help me do that? Right. And it's, uh, yeah, so it's basically employing doctors so people don't have to shoot themselves. Right, right. Okay. okay. All right. Now, euthanasia generally occurs when the person is too sick or debilitated to commit suicide themselves. Mm-hmm. And so the physician himself or herself will provide the lethal dose of medication, usually through an IV line. And so there it's the direct intentional action of the physician as opposed to the action of the patient that's the cause of death. So, so phys- physician-assisted suicide is really the agent making the decision is still the patient himself or herself. And all the physician is is the is the mediator of that decision. Whereas in euthanasia, the guide on the side. Okay, and in euthanasia, the physician is making all the calls. Physician is the active agent. Now, what's what we need to be clear about is that in the in some context, in some countries, the physician acts only when the patient gives consent. 
right? Mm-hmm. Now, you would think that's that should be non-negotiable. But what we're learning from 20 to 30 years' experience of this in Europe is that roughly somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of all cases of euthanasia are done without the explicit consent of the patient. Hmm. In fact, the Dutch, the Dutch actually, this is one of the first places where this was loosely legalized and then formally legalized. The Dutch coined a term for this back in the 80s calling it cryptanasia, which is euthanasia done cryptically, which is which generally without the patient's consent, but also most of the time without the patient's knowledge. Uh, these are patients in a vegetative state or in severe cases of dementia, things like that. It seems to me once we go down that road, then it's it's hard not to suggest that these patients are being harmed. Because if they're being put together either against either against their will or without their knowledge, uh, that's 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 a line that I think is we ought not be crossing. Uh, and it seems to me that's an inevitable result of this because imagine imagine talking to your you know your elderly in-laws for example and let's say they're both living right mm-hmm. okay well let's say Sally's mom is really seriously ill and you know she's demented and doesn't really know kind of which end is up and you know your father-in-law and you and the, the kids all come around and start putting pressure on her to sign this assisted suicide declaration. And she you eventually wear her down, and she does it not because she's tired of living, but essentially because you, all of you are tired of her living. And she signs the declaration, assisted suicide performed, uh, and, you know, under one set of ways of looking at this, all's well. Uh, now, in California, if that happened, you've just committed a felony. Hmm. My question is, who will ever know that this has happened? And without intolerable invasions of privacy, nobody will ever become aware that that you that the family has essentially twisted her arm. That the signature really wasn't hers. Right. Yeah. Into signing this and you essentially you've coerced her into doing this. Mm-hmm. This is why back, way back when this first started being debated, Daniel Callahan, who the, was the head of the Hastings Center, the preeminent bioethics think tank in the world still, said there is no way, even in principle, that the demand that the request for assisted suicide or euthanasia be completely voluntary can be enforced. Hmm. And that, that is, I think, a really troubling part of the legalization of this. Now, if I could amplify this just slightly... And this is where we need to take our lesson, not what's from going on in Oregon and Washington, but what's going on in Europe. Because Europe, I, su- I submit to you, is about 20 years ahead of where we will be on this. Not unusual. They understand that we're facing a demographic landslide, where in the next 20 years, we're going to have record numbers of people like you and me who are going to be over the age of 65. And arguably, uh, needing care when it's the most costly to provide it. Yeah, that actually was going to be my next question, is how much is economics playing into this? It's huge, Uh, especially in Europe. What they're doing, and this is what's so troubling about this, is in Europe now they are explicitly linking the legalization of assisted suicide and euthanasia with controlling this avalanche of costs at the end of life by this caused by the baby boomers becoming geezer boomers. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And as, as a colleague of mine put it some years ago, she said, there is nothing cheaper than dead. Right? Now, that's not a great public relations line for assisted suicide, mm-hmm. but the, the, there is no mistaking the reality that in Europe, they are explicitly connecting these two, which is forcing some folks who are, who are sort of traditionally, uh, I'd say, you know, pro-abortion and liberal on a variety of causes to oppose assisted suicide because they see what's coming. Hmm. And that's the really troubling part of making this legal and opening the doors to it across the board. If it's, if it's legalized on the basis that, that everybody has a fundamental right to die, then the, the other sort of, I think, the other point of tension with this is that if it's based on the, the fundamental right to die, then everybody over, over the age of 18 should be able to exercise it and the reason shouldn't matter. Yeah, I mean, it's you, a fundamental right, and and you do so, understand that there are some forms of medical care that exist today in which procedures that could um, enhance and prolong life are refused because of the cost that they have and the age of the patient who's asking for the procedure. That's right, and 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 I, I don't think that's entirely inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because I mean, I take my dad for example. Uh, you know, he died of this horrible cancer that had started at his at his feet and ankles and spread to his brain. And he had he was an MD Anderson, which is the priciest cancer care probably in the world. It's also some of the best. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm convinced that if he knew that his being treated was going to bankrupt my mom, he would have foregone it without a second thought. Mm-hmm. And I think I think rightly so. Now I want I want that to be someone's choice. The reason I'm not, I wouldn't say that's an obligation because that creates a counterclaim that family members can then exercise, mm-hmm. which I think that uh, families exercise exercising that claim I think is fundamentally incompatible. Much with less a government doing so, right? No. Much What's less that? a government doing so. In other words, having it be mandated as a matter of Paul. I mean, what 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 happens in Europe is that is that certain I think. Uh, tables are put into place, if you will, or processes or policies that say, if you're over this age with this kind of procedure, with this kind of a condition, then the government, because it subsidizes the medical care, will not pay for the process and for the procedure. And some, yeah, just for example, some of this is coming home to roost already. There's a handful of cases in Oregon where uh, the insurance company denied the potential life-extending treatment. And granted, the prognosis was poor. They probably should have denied it. But they instead offered to pay for assisted suicide. And it's, hmm. don't, don't tell me that that's not a financial inducement mm-hmm. that's designed to encourage assisted suicide, precisely because of the financial cost. It's easy to see this now and say, well, you know, we're not in crisis mode. But our healthcare system is going to be in crisis mode probably sometime in the next decade or two because the system is just not equipped to deal with all of us baby boomers you know, Growing old. needing end-of-life care. Yeah. Which 
does not bode well for folks like you and me. Well, I appreciate you um, bringing us near the end of this podcast with great news. Um, <laughs> um, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about euthanasia, which which it's kind of where for most people this discussion starts, but it really is in many ways as it has been for us kind of the last point. Um, what, it's, it's the caboose on the train. Okay. And and – and what what do you how how do you think people should think about euthanasia? Uh, I, I think I think euthanasia is murder, mm-hmm. and it's it's murder particularly of the class of people that the Bible calls us to advocate for, which is the the marginalized. See, in the Scripture, the figures of speech for the most vulnerable among us were the widow and the orphan. Today, I think those figures of speech ought to be changed to the unborn and the elderly. In other words, they include those groups because they're among the vulnerable. Right. Yeah. But I think the predominant figures of speech today, widows, not so much orphans, probably true, still true. Mm-hmm. But we ought to expand that to, to include the, the unborn and the elderly. And your point here is that the principle that the Scripture is talking about is, is that uh, people who are sensitive to, to life and what life means and the way God gives it and seeks for it to be managed in the way we're supposed to encourage one another with regard to life should have, pay special attention to the people who can't advocate for themselves. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the Bible is so clear on the, the obligation of the people of God to care for the most vulnerable among us. I mean that I, you you can't you can barely read one page of the scripture without seeing that come out. Yeah, I mean the the sense of compassion and understanding we're supposed to have about life runs pretty deeply through the scripture as a commitment of the way we love our neighbor and the way we're supposed to relate to one another in support of people. And that's I think that's the really good news about the movie, you know, me before you. Mhm. Uh you know, that's what I love about the movie hmm. is because people, you know, the, the the main character was somebody who's terribly disabled, clearly fits among the most vulnerable among us. Lots of people in Europe would say that's a clear candidate for euthanasia. Yet what the movie's about is this obligation that was fulfilled uh, by meeting and caring for people that we tend to write off as unimportant and marginalized. Interesting. Well, Scott, I really do appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this. It's interesting. I was in uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, this summer and was doing a lot of stuff on cultural engagement, and I was in Christchurch in, in New Zealand, and they said, when you come back, we want you to look at some specific issues for us. And one of the ones that they did was the was the topic of death, dying, and euthanasia, which is uh, which is mm-hmm. uh, becoming a topic of attention up there. And uh, so I thank you for giving some material to work with on when I, when I do this. It's it's yeah, it's helpful to talk to someone who's spent time thinking about this ethically and theologically, and has also dealt with the practical side of it being on a hospital board that makes these decisions regularly. So I really do appreciate you coming in and talking to us about it. I think it's an important topic we don't think enough about. Well, my, it's my pleasure. I, I do think it's it's a crucial one. I've often asked fam, I've often asked families uh, you know who are who are hanging on to earthly life for their loved one, do you really believe the stuff about eternity that you say you do? And I'd like for us to be able to approach the end of life 
like we actually believe this stuff about resurrection and eternity. Well, thank you again, Scott, and we thank you for being a part of the table and hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.